Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, the legacy of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. New legislation is promised. We hear about the changing face of the battlefield in the 21st century. We are working on the assumption now that the threat to us in three division is essentially going to be from UAVs uh, and rocket artillery. And we've seen that play through in modern conflicts. Uh, you know, look at Ukraine or Nagorno-Karabakh. How are Royal Marines training for deployment to the high north? So these small teams and their ability to punch inland have effect and quickly recover raiding in essence it will be raiding for the 21st century and we'll hear about plans to mark the life of sir ernest shackleton the antarctic explorer But first, Downing Street says that Boris Johnson has issued an unreserved apology after an inquest found that 10 people killed during an army operation in Ballymurphy in West Belfast in 1971 were entirely innocent. The coroner said nine of the victims were killed by the army but could not definitively rule who shot the 10th victim, John McCare. Boris Johnson said sorry during a call with Northern Ireland's First and Deputy First Ministers, but some families say that's not a public apology from him. Today, the Northern Ireland Secretary told the Commons that the government is truly sorry. This was a response from some victims' families when the verdicts were announced. He was a totally innocent man. Apology would really, from them, would really mean nothing. They used too much force when they killed her and we're just delighted with the outcome. We're just so happy because the stigma has stuck for 50 years. The coroner's ruling coincided with the government announcing it is to bring forward legislation to deal with legacy issues related to the Northern Ireland Troubles. Our reporter James Hurst is here. Uh, James, what was actually announced in the Queen's speech? Well, it, it simply said that the government would bring forward measures to strengthen devolved government in Northern Ireland and address the legacy of the past. That legacy is more than 3,500 killed in Northern Ireland's decades of armed conflict. The significant majority killed by paramilitaries, but there were also some killed by security forces. What the government still hasn't said, though, is how it plans to resolve these very divisive questions of addressing that legacy. Now, there was a supplementary statement which said it would focus on information recovery and reconciliation and end the cycle of investigations. Essentially, this looks like a move away from investigations to give people their day in court and instead put answers for families with a lower burden of proof as the main aim. And what's the reaction from veterans campaigners? I would say cautious at best. Uh, a senior advisor to the Justice for Northern Ireland's Veterans original campaign told me that until they actually see a bill and all its detail, they can't say whether it delivers for them. But they are worried about anything that would treat the actions of terrorists and security forces with equivalence. Uh, Johnny Mercer, who resigned as Veterans Minister over this issue just a few weeks ago, said it was an ambition and it doesn't change anything for veterans. And what about in Northern Ireland and the Republic? I, I would say that ranges from cautious to negative. And this is important because 
constitutionally this really needs the support of the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly and politically it needs backing from Dublin. Sinn Féin have called it an attempt to slam the door to justice. The Irish Prime Minister said the historic wound should be dealt with under the 2014 Stormont House Agreement which set up the current investigation structure. Uh, Now the Democratic Unionist Party, the largest party in Northern Ireland, I have to say have been pretty quiet on this but the outgoing leader and First Minister Arlene Foster said the future approach must be careful and include everybody. So the government has taken a significant step forward by announcing plans, but there is still more detail to come and many more hurdles to be overcome. James Hurst, thank you. How will increased access by countries to long-range precision strike missiles change the way war is conducted this century? That's one of the questions that will be examined in a virtual conference this week held by the defence think tank RUSI on both the offensive and defensive use of missiles. Brigadier Charlie Hewitt, commanding officer 1 Artillery Brigade, who's speaking at the conference, is just back from Exercise Warfighter, a joint training operation between the UK, France and the United States held in Texas. I asked him about the nature of the threat. I think the the threat depends, I suppose, on where you sit. So the threat to my launchers and guns, I believe to be uh, unmanned aerial systems and then rocket artillery, in that we're in a position now, I think, where you know, the battle space that my father's generation would understand where find and intelligence surveillance and target acquisition, uh, I think, were privileged in a way which it's not really the case these days in that there is more find available by a whole host of means you know not least you know geotagging uh, photos through iphones uh, with you know whichever population it is you're working uh, and so consequently we are working on the assumption now that the threats to us in three division is essentially going to be from uavs uh, and rocket artillery. And we've seen that play through in modern conflicts. Uh, you know, look at Ukraine or Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and the fact is, therefore, that if that's the threat, uh, there's a very simple way to get around that threat, which is to keep moving. Um, so if a UAV is sighted, an unmanned aerial vehicle or aerial system, uh, then the importance is to keep moving uh, and to what I've termed perpetual motion, which means you're never static and therefore never presenting a target. The range of battlefield missiles is obviously critical. How much does the British Army need to extend the range of its assets, given the situation you've just described? Well, I think, firstly, I mean, I will fight with what I've been given. And the range of the multi-launch rocket system is 80 kilometres. But that can't be seen in isolation. In the warfighter exercise, the Combat Aviation Brigade, comprising both Apache um, helicopters and Wildcat helicopters, who fought in excess of 150 kilometres deep. So, firstly, the range which I've got at the moment uh, is sufficient for what I've been asked to do. And I think also, more importantly, given the integrated review uh, and the Defence Command paper are on people's minds, really positive notes in there in terms of the the move for the British military to privilege the deep. Uh, And it also specifically talks about increasing rocket range uh, to 150 kilometres. But it's also important, I think, to understand that we we are fighting inside a core construct. So what 3 Division does inside the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps or a US Corps is fight our divisional space. So I think what I've been given is sufficient in the here and now, and what is coming downrange uh, in terms of what the integrated review announced, I think is really positive. You mentioned UAVs a moment ago. How big a role do you think drones will play in the future battlefield? 
from my perspective, it's a balance then between, as I said, finding and then translating that find into target acquisition. And there's a whole host of ways that you can do that. I look at uh, you know the Ajax vehicle that's coming, its suite of sensors, uh, and the fact that it can find in a truly unique way, I think, uh, which is really positive. The Apache can find as well, as can Wildcat, uh, and of course, leveraging the air component. So I think there's a whole host of ways that we can find. And I think one of the ones that sort of captured the imagination is unmanned aerial systems. Uh, you've just got to look in the press to see how that sort of proliferation of technology has happened in that you know, there are drone clubs within our UAS regiments. And uh, you know, it, I suppose my children have drones. It's just a fact of life. But translating that, I think, into a military application uh, requires a specialization. And so while I think, you know, the, the modern battlefield will be dominated by UAVs, um, I think it's only part of that system of finding. And how much interoperability does there need to be and why? I think linking, I, I was formerly an artillery officer before I became a general staff officer. So I think, you know, as an artillery officer, from a very early age, uh, we get taught to integrate uh, from our very outset of our careers and therefore linking what we call sensor to shooter. And I think the point of the, I suppose, the proliferation of sensors on the battlefield means that if the army headquarters were on the line, they would talk about any sensor appropriate decider uh, and then the most appropriate shooter. So it's linking that sensor, i.e. finding things, to shooter, i.e. having an effect. And by way of shooter, I also mean you know blending lethal and non-lethal effect, which is what came through on the warfighter exercise as well. Just the wealth of, I suppose, assets and opportunities 3UK did had at our disposal uh, to blend lethal and non-lethal. It's not just simply a case of high explosive, but all the clever things that could be done with electronic attack and, you know, the, the capabilities that 6th Division bring to the party, but also the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance brigade as well. But trying to create, uh, I suppose, multiple problems for the enemy commander by not just being kinetic, but also looking at the non-lethal effects as well. That was Brigadier Charlie Hewitt. Well, joining me now is Professor Michael Clark, the former director of RUSI. Uh, Michael, interesting that the focus we've heard about there is on the impact of drones. Yes. I mean, what Brigadier Hewitt was saying, that, that um, the artillery have got their own deep fires, that is, they've got their own artillery that can reach out to, as you were saying there, 150 kilometres in future. It's about 80-odd kilometres now, so that will be extended. But you've got to go deeper than that as well, and that means using drones, because you've got to get to you know, 200, 250, 300 kilometres into the deep space. And most of those drones, of course, are being used for surveillance. As he said, you've got to find, first of all, before you can fix and fire. And certainly Britain's use of drones so far, 90-odd percent of them are surveillance drones, and only a few of them are used as strike drones. Now, that percentage will change in the future, but essentially drones are the the game changer in the immediate battle space of, say, 500 miles either side of the line. And the MOD has announced upgrades to its multiple launch rocket systems over a five-year programme. Yes, uh, running from next year, so 2022 to 2026-27, we're going to upgrade the MLRS, the uh, multiple launch rocket system, so so give it the greater range that Brigadier Hewitt was talking about, up to 150 kilometres, that's about 80-odd miles, make it more survivable, give it better sensors and so on. So it's an upgrade of what, what the artillery, in a sense, what we'd regard now as, as guns. It's the artillery's ability to fire from one place. And, of course, as he said, you've got to be mobile. I mean, the way to stay safe is to keep moving. So the idea that, you know, the artillery ranges its guns up and then 
then they sort of bang away at targets um, somewhere in the distance. That's that belongs to a previous era. Um, they've now got to move, fire a move, fire a move, even more than they ever did before. And there's a wider question about the use of very long-range hypersonic missiles. Can you explain that? Hypersonic missiles are missiles that travel at more than Mach 5, five times the speed of sound. That means that they do a mile every second. Now, the Russians are said to have developed hypersonic missiles that may be Mach 10. Uh, not sure about that, but certainly um, something above Mach 5. Supersonic uh, is defined as Mach 3, three times the speed of sound. So the point about hypersonic missiles uh, is that they are almost impossible to defend against because they're so fast. They're faster than anything you can, you can fire at them, in effect. If they're moving at Mach 5 or something above Mach 5, they're very hard to defend against unless by some sort of electronic means. But the old idea of shooting them down or, or having a kinetic defense against them is very difficult. The Russians and the Chinese are making big progress in this. The Americans not so much because they've got different strategies and they don't quite believe in hypersonic missiles to the same extent. But Britain and France, we're trying to replace our harpoon um, seaborne missile and the French are looking to replace their Exocet missile. So uh, Britain and France are collaborating on a, a, the project called Perseus so that we would develop a hypersonic missile, but not until 2030 or sometime thereafter. So we're somewhere behind in that particular race. Let's just turn to another matter and the government has published a report today on the future of the reserve force. What does it say, Michael? Yeah, it's um, it's trying to take forward the integrated operational concept that the Chief of Defence Staff launched last year. It's, it's, it's only recommendations, but it makes 18 recommendations. And what it's trying to do is to show in the ways in which we could use the reserve forces more um, more uh, often and more usefully. And so it, it recommends uh, quite a lot of things, but it recommends that we should divide the reserves into three components. That is reinforcement, the people who work with the, the armed services, and they'll be working all the time, not just when they're called out to an overseas operation. So reinforcement, then operational, which will do some reinforcement, but will be trained for contingencies. So particular contingencies like, let's say, chemical warfare or cyber attack or terrorism, something like that. And then a third group would be the strategic reserves, reserves, if you like, the ability to surge, to really develop the reserve forces above the 30-odd thousand, 35,000 that we presently have. So the idea would be um, a, a, a reconfiguration into different levels of, of, upper, of, of activity, but the, the reserves will be, will be busier, they'll be more integrated into the main forces, uh, and they'll, do, uh, they'll, they'll operate uh, more on a day-to-day -day basis, not just when they're called out on an individual basis. And one final thing, which I think is quite interesting about the report, is it recommends the creation of a reserve support organization. Now, people have said in the past, well, you know, you shouldn't have that because the reserves are part of all of the regulars. They're part of the whole system. But this report is saying, look, you know, the reserves have a special place. They have special issues. There are, there are questions that they have which regulars don't have. So we need a reserve support organization to actually promote what they do and the flexibility that they need. And I think that's probably a, a good idea. All right, Michael, stay with us. A strike group headed by HMS Albion is going through its final preparations in Scotland before deploying to the High North with allies. Littoral Response Group North will be testing out some of the innovations that are part of the Royal Navy's transformation strategy during the exercise. David Sibbles McCann reports. HMS Albion is loading up her stores at Reside Dockyard on the 4th. 
as the crew looks ahead to a key deployment in developing the new vision for the Royal Navy. Latoro Response Group North aims to develop the future vision for the senior service. It's already been put to the test in the Mediterranean last year, but this mission will see the new way of working applied while operating with allies in a challenging environment vital to European security. The ship's commanding officer, Captain Simon Kelly, says it's different to previous deployments in the region. The strike companies that are being delivered from the group are operating in a more agile, uh, more sophisticated manner. They're absorbing everything they can from the most modern technological developments. And what we'll be looking to do here is integrate that with the ships. So I'll have remote piloting systems, we'll have a more agile command and control mechanism from the ship to the Royal Marines deploying ashore. So it's about a blend of the equipment and the technology that we have today and looking at how we can develop that into the future. Rather than thinking of LRG North as a traditional deployment, a bounded deployment, it is more an operating concept or a commitment to the region, to the Baltic, to the high north and the Arctic. And so what we'll see is a persistent presence of elements of the littoral response group in and around the region. No smoking, no naked lights throughout the ship, fueling ship. This is about developing the amphibious strike capability for the future. The Marines will be working in smaller, more specialised teams, the concept known as Future Commando Force. And 4-5 Commando's CEO, Lieutenant Colonel Ennis Catton, says this allows them to meet the challenges of modern warfare. That mindset change, yes, will at some point start to involve certain bits of new equipment and some of the new technologies that are emerging. But more importantly, it's starting to see us be much bolder in terms of some of the tactics we would use. A higher dependency on smaller independent teams who can work alone, isolated and at reach, but also the sort of coordination and command that it can bring them quickly back together to have a much larger effect well out kilter with the size of the force. Based off a ship like HMS Albion and with RFA Mounts Base supporting her, we're able to bring that effect from the maritime across a vast area. And so these small teams and their ability to punch inland have effect and quickly recover raiding in essence. It will be raiding for the 21st century. Just up the coast, at Barry Budden near Dundee, the Marines are practising their landing drills. Making sure the troops and vehicles can get ashore safely is one of the key moments in any amphibious assault. And Captain Pete Goddard from Four Assault Squadron says they must make sure the skills are sharp ahead of their deployment. These drills are going to be the bread and butter of what we end up doing every day, working in small teams and inserting via small craft quite often at the dead of night will be our bread and butter. Going forward, making sure the guys understand that and that they can move forward and do that comfortably is going to be key to our success. The Royal Navy is going through many changes at the moment, but for some of the crew on Albion, it's all new ground, with able seaman Ben Tovey and Lieutenant Tom Hillier looking forward to their first deployment. One of the good things about my role is that no day is, is the same, everything is completely different each day. And going forward, looking forward to this uh, deployment, it's a lot of exciting things to, that are going to be happening. It feels good, really get an understanding and depth of really the operational side of the Royal Navy. Really appreciate the experience, especially as a reservist, coming on board and really appreciating a little response group north uh, and how, how things run. The changes to the Royal Navy have been described as the most significant transformation to the service since the Second World War. This deployment north not only aims to provide reassurance to allies and deter adversaries in the region, 
but gives the Navy the chance to put this new way of working into practice on a large scale over the next few weeks. That was David Sybil's McCann reporting. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, this kind of flexibility being demonstrated has been highlighted in the integrated review, hasn't it? Yes, uh, the Navy is very keen that it wants to operate these two literal response groups, one in Northern Europe that we heard from and the other one in the Indian Ocean because the idea is that the Marines, as, as commando groups, uh, will be able to... Uh, it was interesting that, um, that we heard the phrase there, uh, raiding, raiding for the 21st century. We used to call it strategic raiding, which makes people a bit nervous, but that's what it is. It's the ability to send a group more or less anywhere and the Indian Ocean Group will probably be based at Duckham uh, in Oman, and that will give it coverage of, across the Middle East, the Gulf, parts of the Indian Ocean. And uh, these groups can turn up pretty well anywhere and do a job, uh, and they're very good at it. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. Now, later this year, a group of military personnel will be setting off for Antarctica to make a perilous 300-kilometre journey across its peninsula. The eight-strong team will be carrying out research into climate change and marking the life of a very famous Antarctic explorer. Simon Newton went to meet them. The snow can come down at a rate of a metre a day, winds of more than 100 miles an hour and temperatures of minus 55. Antarctica is one of the most beautiful and inhospitable places on the planet, the highest, windiest and coldest landmass on Earth. For 200 years, adventurers have been braving its icy plateaus and mountains, and later this year a team of eight explorers, including a number of military personnel, will be aiming to journey across a vast expanse of it. They're going to carry out research to look for traces of microplastics, tiny fragments less than five millimetres long that, thanks to global pollution, now litter our planet. Plastic basically doesn't degrade. What it does is it uh, splits into tiny, 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 tiny bits. Lieutenant General Richard Nugy recently authored a strategy on climate change and sustainability for the MOD. He's also the science patron of this expedition. What's happening is because they're so small, they're being ingested into our um, food, they're being ingested by fish, they're being ingested. Um, so actually, they are affecting us to a certain extent, um, and there's been science to show that actually we're eating microplastics, whether, whether we like it or not, and of course completely unknown to us because they're technically there, but they're invisible because they're so small. They're affecting the uh, sources of our food, so fish um, in, in this particular environment. Uh, they're, they're affecting all animals that are, are being affected by microplastics. The team aimed to land at Portal Point on the Antarctic Peninsula sometime in December. From there, they'll head upwards, climbing 2,000 metres through crevasse fields to an area known as the Forbidden Plateau. They'll then attempt to navigate their way down to Foyne Point on the east coast of the peninsula, probably via the Evans Glacier. Here, they'll carry out repairs to a GPS transmitter, which helps record the movement of bedrock, an indication of how much ice is melting due to global warming. At Foyne Point, they'll also hold a special ceremony, toasting the life of Sir Ernest Shackleton at a spot overlooking the Weddell Sea and the site of his famous endurance expedition of 1915. With the outward leg complete, they'll start their return journey, hauling their sleds back across the Forbidden Plateau to Portal Point, undertaking more scientific research along the way, a gruelling round trip of around 300 kilometres. This is a, a, a Hurley photograph of... Um of the expedition living on the ice. You can see the tents. 
Lady Alexandra Shackleton is the granddaughter of Sir Ernest Shackleton, one of the legendary polar explorers of the 20th century. This year marks the 100th anniversary of his last Antarctic voyage in 1921, and this current expedition, of which she is patron, is called Quest, the name of his ship. Well, it's a very impressive expedition. I'm very impressed by the qualifications of leader and those involved. I mean, nowadays, um, to my grandma's work, there were never exactly scientific expeditions. There was some science, but that wasn't the main thing. But of course, they were treading unknown areas and didn't know what they would find. When, uh, well, for instance, when Ernest Shackleton and his men nearly got to the South Pole, he pioneered the route to the Pole, eventually got up onto the Polar Plateau, and they were suffering from altitude sickness. It's two miles above sea level, but no one knew that. It was so much into the unknown. And the expedition doctor, they were in a very bad way, I thought took their temperatures, one of them was theoretically dead. The majority of the team are experienced Antarctic explorers. Former sailor Anthony Ginman is the expedition number two. He's one of just a few Britons to have skied to both geographic poles. So this is the inside of our tent on a nice, almost a spring uh, Devonshire day. But, um, But the reality is on Antarctica, this would be incredibly noisy. The tent would be banging with the wind. Yeah, and temperature-wise would be very, very cold as well. So only when the stoves are on is the tent actually nice and warm inside. Uh, And the warmest you can be inside the tent is actually in your sleeping bag as well. The team will be hauling 100 kilo sleds. To practice, they've been dragging tyres across a beach, as Star Sergeant Richard Simpson showed me on Slapton Sands in Devon. Man, alive. Okay, so the poles that you've got in your hand. Yeah. Yeah, try using it as, um, like, two handrails. The sun will be setting soon. Keep going. You make this look really hard. <laughs> the team expect to spend more than a month on the ice, exploring untrodden ice fields and carrying out vital research. Along the way, raising a glass of Shackleton whiskey to the great man and all those that came before. Simon Newton reporting there. Well, earlier I spoke to Lieutenant Commander Paul Hart, Royal Navy Reserve and Expedition Leader, and asked him how central to the mission is the research on pollution. Um, It's critical. So we have a number of different uh, mission objectives in terms of the science component. Each one of those is a standalone objective in its own right. So we're looking for microplastics, we're looking for metal contaminants, and we're also looking for other aspects of geological change in the peninsula, i.e. mass movement of the land, which will indicate whether the ice is melting and uh, flowing into the sea, thereby increasing sea level rise. So there's a whole spectrum of, um, of expedition objectives which are science-related, science-based, uh, as well as us doing the commemoration piece to Shackleton. And it's one of the most beautiful and at times inhospitable places on the planet. You've been to Antarctica before in 2012. What are the main physical challenges? Having crossed the peninsula in 2012, it was having, uh, I'd spent time in the Himalayas, done first ascents on, on Himalayan peaks, and thought I understood, you know, the worst weather conditions that could be thrown at me. I didn't really understand what bad weather was until I got to Antarctica in 2012. And um, winds in excess of 100 kilometres an hour, the the spin drift build-up, the burying of tents, the crevasse risk, which was ever-present as we were travelling to quite a high altitude over a very short distance up glaciers and then down on the far side towards the last night shelf. So we have all of those components, hostile weather, we have uh, crevasse and avalanche risk. And, and then on top of that, thrown into it, there is also the just the sheer physical uh, demands of hauling a heavy sled for long periods. 
most people who go into crevasse will go into crevasse as a mountaineering activity. They won't be hauling a sled weighing 100 kilos plus with various science equipment on it. So that, that, that's an additional concern. Um, nevertheless, as you said, it's a superbly beautiful area. And you are marking the life of Sir Ernest Shackleton too. How important a figure is he still for polar expeditions? Well, um, Shackleton's demise on the 5th of January uh, 1922 is considered to be the end of the heroic age of polar exploration. Shackleton was one of those figures in in that whole polar exploration piece who is still outstanding for, for most polar travellers today. In fact, actually, most people know of Shackleton, know the story of Shackleton, know of his, his endurance uh, success, obviously the loss of the vessel being, um, you know, a calamitous event. But ultimately, his ability to cope with the environment and safely get his team back to the UK after a really, you know, quite some quite horrendous conditions and experiences on the ice. So, he's, yeah, he's an iconic figure. And what most people don't know is that he went down in, in um, 100 years ago to undertake science, very much looking at what was happening to Antarctica and, and being able to then inform and educate people back in the UK about how Antarctica was changing and we're doing the same thing. That was Lieutenant Commander Paul Hart there. Professor Michael Clark is still with us. And, and briefly, Michael, um, it's important to note that there are also strong geopolitical interests in the Antarctic as well. Yes, as global warming uh, takes place, you can see that there are lots of bases uh, on Antarctica and some of them are now becoming politically important. China and Australia are competing with each other in eastern Antarctica over their bases. Nobody quite knows what's going on at the Chinese base, but the expectation is that it will it, there will be demands on fisheries and possibly on minerals. So I think that as of now, Antarctica has only got to be used for scientific purposes. But you can see that geopolitics are coming to the continent in the very near future. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time today. And that is it from me, Kate Chabot, and all my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. In a brand new, original BFBS podcast. I just remember being so angry with everybody, everyone in Iraq like beyond angry and tears rolling down my eyes. What is it that drives people to be brave? We knew that he didn't have that long to live, so we had to continue. To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I guarantee that if this battle continues, not only will we die, but you guys are going to be coming with us. Hear from the men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. They talk about what happened, what they went through at the time, and how they feel about it now. TN Meadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.